Hey, welcome to Space Bros, the science fiction movie podcast for bad bitch feminists. I'm Mary. And with her is Kate and my sister from the same mister, <laughs> Megan Whitney. What's up, girl? What up? Thanks for having me. <laughs> so happy to have you. You podcast listener out there know what you're doing because you clicked the name of this. So you know that we're doing the Netflix original series, limited series, Maniac, this week. Woohoo! So good. But we got a little twist for you. twister Rooney. Because we um, are testing out a new format. So Maniac is about 10 episodes long, and there's just too much good stuff to pack it into one. So this is going to be a two-parter. Uh, so for this first one, we're going to do episodes one through four, and then we'll be back next time with six through 10 to wrap it up. So for this first uh, half, we're going to be introducing the series and the themes and kind of discussing what happens in the first couple episodes, and then we'll be back to wrap the whole thing up. So if you haven't watched it, get on it. Um, or maybe you want to listen to our podcast and decide if you want to watch it. I don't know. You you do you. It's all good. You do you. Yeah, into that. So let me tell you a little bit about what Maniac is about. <clears throat> Maniac follows two strangers, Annie Landsberg and Owen Milgram, who connect during a mind-bending pharmaceutical trial conducted by Neberdeen Pharmaceutical Biotech and overseen by their scientists, Dr. Robert Maramuto, until his untimely death, Dr. James Mantelray and Dr. Azumi Fujita. So the program consists of three pills meant to eliminate the need for human suffering and obviously also uh, therapy. So pill A identifies or seeks out your worst traumas and brings them to the forefront. Pill B will use their high quality AI, the GRTI or GERTI, uh, to find how you hide yourself from your traumas, the walls and the stories you tell yourself. And Pill C, which we'll get to a little bit later uh, in part two, because we only see a little bit of Pill B in part one, uh, helps to confront and remap your brain. So there's some echoes of Eternal Sunshine, our last podcast, uh, as in there are white men fucking with your brain, moving shit around to, quote, fix you. So... Real great. Uh, yeah. Megan, do you want to tell us a little bit about why you chose to guest on Maniac? Other than that you were invited and, you know, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I loved this so, so much. I'm actually a psychiatry resident. Um, and part of our third year is we do a lot of therapy and talking about therapy and talking about theories about therapy. And so I thought it was just fantastic. Um, I mean, it's so beautiful. It's so hopeful. It's just a gorgeous story about relationships and family and the families that you choose to build around you. Um, there's symbolism woven all the way through the story. It's beautifully shot. And it has a lot of interesting things to say about technology and the effect it has on relationships. And full disclosure, I'm against technology knowing anything about me. So I have lots of feelings about that part of it. So Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, whatever. Who, who wants technology in their life, right? Not, you know, the people who host a sci-fi podcast that are really into tech. Technology is the enemy. Yeah, right? I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of my electric lights right now. Indoor plumbing be gone. It's enough. Yep. Oh, my God. Yep. Going to poop in a hole in my backyard. Um, definitely not going to do that. Uh, yeah, definitely no. <laughs> not going to do that. So, of course, Space Bras, where we care about viewing things from a feminist perspective. And I'll be real. The first time I watched this, I wasn't really even thinking about that. So it was fun to revisit it. <laughs> it was fun to revisit it. Uh, I mean, like everything that I consume, I think about. I look for feminist themes, obviously. But, of course, this show forces us to take a little bit more of a hard line. And I was interested. I was interested to see how different I felt about it when I watched it from a feminist perspective versus the first time around as just a casual viewer um what did you guys think what what themes did you pick up on something that i really liked is uh i felt like in the promotion for this they made it seem like it was a jonah hill picture you know but from the very hill first picture. yeah <laughs> the very first picture you see um is annie you're introduced to her from the very beginning she influences so much of the narrative and she's such a fully formed um human and with a lot of nuance and a lot of damage and i just loved seeing this woman engaging in her own 
like taking on our own life and dealing with addiction and dealing with trauma. And I just felt like that was so empowering and powerful. Also, to a lesser extent, I feel like the B plot in this, which is about the scientists, which is a little bit cartoonish to kind of, uh, I think, offset how heavy and dark the the parts around Annie and Owen can be. Um, Sally Fields plays uh, both the GRTA voice and um, Dr. Greta Mantel- Mantelray, uh, a pop psychologist. And we have uh, uh, Dr. Amuzi Fujita, who is also the same actress who played Kyoko in Ex Machina. And while they're a little bit more cartoonish, they're both very intelligent, very um, autonomous and actualized women. And that's, I think, really powerful. I agree. Although I think, well, and we'll get into this in part two. I already know this is yeah, going to be yeah. controversial. But um, <laughs> I have, like, major issues with the the way that Fujita and uh, who I, and Mantle Ray Sr., which is what I'm going to call her through this. Um, dope. And, dope. As well as, as well as Gertie from a feminist perspective. But that's what the fun is. Because, like, if it was all just peaches and roses, we wouldn't be talking about it, right? Totes. It's got to be complicated. It's got to be complex. Yeah, but I totally agree. Like, the stuff that has to do with Annie, I think, is, like, very powerful and exciting from a feminist perspective. Um, and kind of going back to what you touched on, Megan, um, in, in the reason for the season why we're watching this uh, this uh, series, is that I also think that it's really noteworthy that there is not a really a central romantic plot in this story. And that is cr- pretty unusual for... Yeah. A, a series about women and connection generally generally there would be a there'd be another person that they were connecting with on a sexual level and i don't think that that really happens in this um i would agree yeah agreed yeah i think that's really highlighted by the um what is it the f- friend that you pay for friend proxy friend be... proxy yeah friend we're not proxy. obviously we're not at the end yeah. but yeah yeah but yeah. i agree yeah that totally clears it up <laughs> yeah one hundred percent. We can't wait to dive into now, that. So we come can back ta- next week. We but. can t- we can talk about it now. It's okay. Well, we're we're actually about to talk about the science fiction elements in the reality. So it's like we if- can't talk about it, right? Yeah. Guys, guys, I was I was kind of a dictator about this. I I made the outline. And I was like, guys, watch only the first couple episodes, then fill out your outline, then go to part two. So, well, you know, and actually, I was that. confused by that because I thought it was like you were like, and we can you could talk about any part of the series at any point during any of the outlines. So I'm not very good at following directions. Yeah, that's obviously. what I tried to do. And- Kate was a real fascist today. I was like, it kind of relates to this thing later on. She's like, you're not going to talk about that, though. <laughs> I'm super great. Everybody should want to be my sister and my podcast co-host and my best friend. And yeah. I was saying, you is know. that all I am to you, a podcast co-host? Jeez. No, no, no. Oh, wow. No, no, no. I, t- I listen to all the things, you know. <laughs> These are, we're, right now we're on a podcast with the two women who mean the most to me in, you know, in the world. So, uh yeah guys yeah get in line anyway sorry take that <laughs> listeners uh, people who thought that they were close with kate you now know your place that's oh right <laughs> i'm really sorry i love everyone obviously okay anyway so let's dive into the science fiction elements of this reality for a little bit of funsies so it's really funny this reality has like super advanced technology like we can remap your brain technology but all the concepts are mired in this 80s rendering and aesthetic like the original floppy disk that's giant and floppy it's kind of reminiscent of the paradox that around steampunk aesthetics this you know steam powered technology but you can also fly and travel through time and shit so i kind of love that but um what do the science fiction elements say about this world i'll be very very honest i kind of thought a lot of the like it's the future and the past combining together like aspect of it the 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 elements of the past i mostly thought were stylistic and there to be cool Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, really. But isn't steampunk stylistic and there to be cool? It is, although I think a lot of steampunk stuff is generally set in the past. So it's like, it's like, it's Victorian people, yet they have flying machines. You know what I mean? So that's, to me, so a little I bit different. It was post-apocalyptic and Sometimes like, we're matching a you world right. in which like, 
the right. apocalypse has come somehow we've regressed to victorian ideals and fashion but also have the technology you know whatever but yeah i get what you're saying I do, it's I stylistic do. but i think this is mostly stylistic like if i try if you push me to like be like where does the how does it what does it mean what does it mean man i guess what i arrive at is i think that it forces you as a viewer to not be blown away by the um by, by like the technology of it all it's it makes it, it renders it a little bit funnier and a little bit easier to just kind of be like oh yeah i could see how that's like not great like that's yeah. not like it doesn't wow you like in ex machina for example you're a little bit like wowed with the vi- vi- like the visuals and like looking at that computer chip like crazy brain and things like that you're a little bit like whoa and i think it seduces you a little bit and i think that they are simultaneously trying to kind of play- be playful with it and also yeah. negate mm-hmm. that seduction which is a funny thing to do with a science fiction film it's more uh, it's more post apocalyptic without being apocalyptic yeah where you're like oh maybe the future is like not going to be great guys it's interesting cuz the the concepts are like what is um unsettling not not the um not the vi- rendering of the technology cuz the rendering you're right is like archaic and kind of fun but like the idea that you know, daddy's home, the mail order husband, where you can join a family after they've been bereft by the death of a husband, assume their technology, but we're offering you heroism. Like, I also love that, like, like the chosen one being in the marquee, like this idea of like heroism is so much more important in a world in which the economy is clearly like totally bankrupt. You can get fired at any point because they talk about furloughs and the ads that like, you know, and it makes this need to be a hero and a savior and the chosen one even more prescient than it is in our world, which it still is. Like, those are the narratives that we, I mean, I, I don't mean to say we as in, like, that's the only narrative people like, but we're also a sci-fi podcast that, that comes up, you know? I mean, I think it also helps viewers take a step back from the technology, kind of like you were saying, Mary, like, it's easier to, like, look at it and what it's playing out and what it's causing to happen in these relationships because when you think about like ad buddy like we get ads all the time but it's just would be super weird if instead of youtube popping up with an ad some dude sat down next to you and started reading it to you (laughs) right like yeah Yeah. we experience this kind of stuff all the time and also like kind of judging you about like your life yeah like you pay how much in rent where like I, th- I think it's it's to me it sort of spoke to an America and probably a, a world um, that has descended into like a late stage capitalist mess or further into a late stage capitalist mess than we already are. Yeah, right. And it's rendered technology pervasive but never glamorous. Like the technology here is n- almost never glamorous. Um, from like the little Wally poop cleaning robot on the street to like an ad buddy, which then means that it's actually more expensive to to like bombard you with ads and like in a future instagram than it is to have like regular human labor which is which is like very upsetting concept right yeah i love the first episode um of this series i know everyone thinks that has quote unquote the netflix problem where nothing really happens in the first episode but there's just a lot of world building and it like tickles me like i love the little moments where they talk where like so they're in new york and you see an, uh, a tour group go by and yes. you hear the tour group uh leaders say and now we're looking at the statue of liberty except in a shorter dress with like a hand with a sword upraised like and like flames shooting out around her it's wild but yeah i mean like there's there are little offhanded mentions like uh rent comprises 87.2 percent of everyone's and of the average person's annual income well no that what's interesting about that is he's he's reading stats specifically about owen yeah oh which um, is fascinating to me because because it would be like like the way in which there's data mining like i started getting ads about like engagement rings when i started looking at engagement rings but instead you're also getting judgment of the person next to you being like is that true are you really paying that much in rent like are you really ready to get engaged like you know it's just like it's very tongue-in-cheek but like yeah that's about the fact that owen is moving out for the first time and moved into like what his parents would consider to be an okay apartment but still way too far away and therefore his rent is way more expensive because he's living in a room 
of his own. Well, you know, and and maybe it's also a little bit of a hint that his parents pay for part of it. Well, I think that they don't because later on his dad's like, you could always get a roommate. And I was like, where would a roommate fit in that apartment? Like, <laughs> totally. Clearly they haven't seen it. I also think, you know, so we also have lots of themes of isolation throughout this technology you have um friend proxy oh my god the friend proxy is the most depressing thing ever megan i know you took some notes about that do you want to talk about it yeah i mean i took notes on it because like in the very opening scenes like while the narrator is still talking and he walks in this coffee shop and sees this guy who looks like he's trying to tell a story to his friends he's in the middle of a table he can't get the friends on one side to listen, and then he can't get the friends on the other side to listen, and then he looks so sad. And later on, you realize he's wearing the friend proxy badge, so he's being paid to be there, and he still mm. can't get anyone to even connect with him and talk to him. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. Like, I just felt so sad about it. Yeah, the most lonely concept that you would pay someone to pretend to be a friend that you actually had. Like, I miss Mary, so I'm going to pay for someone else to be Mary instead of calling Mary because it's much easier to just pay for someone to pretend to be only the best parts of my friendship. And then I can just file it away, you know? And then I can also ignore them when they're actually there. Yeah, emotionally laborless, right? Like, you, if you call me and I'm having a bad day, you have to listen to my bad day. Yeah. A friend proxy will show up and they'll be like, remember that crazy time we did that mm-hmm. thing? Like, you can give... You can give them a little piece of like our relationship and then they will pantomime it. But you get to choose. Right. You don't have to hear about my bad day. You can only you can only have like the best, most like socially malleable version of me at a given time, which is very dark. Yeah, it makes a very isolated and lonely seeming existence for everyone, I would argue you know do we have anything else we want to talk about in terms of technology i will say that one of my favorite pieces of bad future technology mm-hmm. is unnecessary rampage like obviously we need ramps everywhere to make spaces accessible but sure. that long huge ramp in owen's family house just cracks me up so much oh my god yeah <laughs> it's like in a future world where love and stairs are illegal like <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just so crazy. That's like one of my favorite, like weird, cheap, because like they used to do that all the time in the 70s. It was cheap. We knew ramps were technology that we had. We just never used them instead of stairs. So it was like very huge, very Logan's runny to be like, everything's a ramp now. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Our first episode, our pilot starts at the very beginning with the narrator. It begins like this. Two billion years ago, an amoeba. Wait, let's let's back up. I've, I've skipped too many connections. Out of nothing, in an instant, everything. An infinite cosmic orgy of matter and energy, rubbing, bumping, and grinding together. There would be no galaxies, no suns, no planets, no life without collisions of heavenly bodies. Back to our amoeba. It engulfs a bacterium with unique powers, and voila! Earth's first photosynthesis-enabled organism. Maybe it was chance. Maybe it was inevitable. This one changed amoeba becomes the ancestor of every living plant on Earth, which in turn floods the planet with oxygen. Paving the way for every other form of life we know, leading to more souls, more connections, and therefore more new worlds branching outward from the first. These forces of nature, when they converge, be they astronomical collisions, biological unions, demonstrate the infinite potential of our connections. This truth also extends to the human heart. Hypothesis, all souls are on a quest to connect. Corollary. Our minds have no awareness of this quest. Hypothesis. All the worlds that almost were matter just as much as the world we're in. Corollary. These hidden worlds cause us great pain. Camaraderie. Communion. Family, friendship, love, what have you. We're lost without connection. It's quite terrible to be alone. Put simply, my goal is to eradicate all unnecessary and inefficient forms of human pain forever. We must evolve past our suffering. My research into this matter is 
of course, ongoing. But our narrator's talking about the cosmic bodies and human desires of connection. What do we think of this narrative and the hypotheses? What do they say about, like, the rest of the series? Like, thematic importance. The, the amoeba. I love how he says the amoeba. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like, I just have, like, one kind of, like, I think it, it's pretty tight. Generally, I think it's supposed to say, and and I, I realize I have like a note that I should not reveal until the end. So sorry, Kate. <laughs> oh my um, god, I'm sorry to be the worst. You can do whatever you want. I'm no, sorry. No, no. It's okay. I mean, I think that like at a very like fundamental like basic basic read of this is like connection is in our biology. We biologically need to connect with one another. They say specifically these forces of nature when they converge, be they astronomical collisions, biological unions, demonstrate the infinite potential of our connections and the truth also extends to the human heart but what we see in that moment uh, on the screen it's it's a picture of two sperm approaching an egg so the picture of sperm is actually a newspaper clipping it's a cartoon it's two sperm at an egg one says rock paper scissors which belies this wonder of like connection with a wry humor i love this idea that their connections can be explained away the way their paths intersect and maybe nothing special about their collision but maybe everything is because they say in this line maybe it was chance maybe it was inevitable and i feel like that could be like a refrain in the story the way that so it goes is for uh kurt vonnegut's slaughterhouse five like every time they intersect maybe it's chance Maybe it was inevitable, you know? I mm -hmm. love that. I mean, I like the narrator. I think it's like a really beautiful way to set it up. And if you're not paying attention to what he's saying and you're just watching what's happening, I feel like you miss something. Like, I think rewatching this, you catch so much more. But I mean, they basically tell you the first like three minutes, hey, this is all going to be about connections and relationships. And I mean, that's pretty much what it seems to be about. Um, I, yeah. I just loved also while that whole like intro is playing, you get the parts where you're seeing Annie digging through garbage and like, I think we'll get into this later, but she finds like the Don Quixote book that she takes and then she throws out this Rubik's Cube that is what we see Owen with later on. So it's like the connections are already starting whether or not they know it. You see her like toss it over her shoulder and then behind her like you see Owen bend down and like pick up this Rubik's Cube and that's actually how like the first episode transitions from Annie's story to being an introduction to Owen. It's very, very clever. But yeah, that first hypothesis, all souls are on a quest to connect and corollary, our minds have no awareness of this quest. It doesn't matter what your damage is, you still, as Mary said, like from like just a, a physical level from an evolutionary level from biological need you want to connect with people i like that it's pretty beautiful guys i think you could argue that sort of you have a central combination and at first it seems like they're at odds with each other but at the end they're just like an intertwined like a big mobius strip of pattern and chaos you could decide that the story is like about a chaotic a chaotic being who is annie colliding with a person who is incredibly um preoccupied with seeing patterns in life who is owen yeah and logic order patterns yeah and you yeah. realize that it's like the same it's the same thing ultimately it takes them to the same place they move through space in a very similar way they ultimately connect but they do it in they do it with different perspectives um and i think yeah. that you have if by having the central narrator and kind of showing showing these big crazy huge um, scientific things and then showing people like kind of having chance meetings and chance connections and like little um, connective fibers shooting out and forming between people you realize that it is all pattern and it is all chaos and they're just kind of the same thing um, which I think is, is a nice is a nice uh, backbone of this story yeah it, it, it again highlights what I liked about uh, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind which is this idea that like it doesn't all have to be about destiny it can be um it can be a combination. It can be different perspectives. Uh, even though, like, everyone wants to connect, it doesn't mean these two people had to connect. But it, you know, maybe, maybe it was chance. chance. Maybe, maybe it was, it was inevitable. inevitable. We're not given that answer. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I mean, sometimes the pattern is the pattern. Like, you just... <laughs> The pattern <laughs> is the pattern indeed. <laughs> Let's talk about our protagonist. We've mentioned Annie and Owen, but uh, this is kind of the meat of what we want to talk about in this first ep. So... What do we think of Annie as a character? You know, like, how do she and Owen kind of contrast? 
So, I mean, I love Owen so much. I felt like as soon as I first started, like, as soon as he showed up, it was like, oh, he's, like, pretty schizophrenic is how it <laughs> played to me. Um, was is that, in you know, your, is that in your professional opinion or? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, Kate and I were talking about this earlier, and she was like, yeah, I mean, he's just kind of flat at times. So I was like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's how schizophrenic patients can be that's like one of the symptoms is like no affect like really slowed like speech slowed like cognition like he just nailed it for sure yeah Um, i was telling megan i was like i just feel like that's like the weakest part of his acting she's like no like that's what i thought was great he's really acting like a schizophrenic person i'm like oh oh okay well i think he's i think he's also trying to act like he wasn't in super bad until episode nine but i'm getting ahead of myself (laughs) He's like, I demand yeah, to be taken seriously. And it's okay. Yeah, he should be taken seriously. He's a good actor in this. It's a good role. But I can understand why he's a little bit more subdued. Like, that does make yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like, that's a normal thing for, like, chronic schizophrenics is you don't show a lot of reactions on your face or a lot of emotions. So I was convinced immediately. I mean, he's just so unmoored, it seems like. Not just because he's having these hallucinations and has these kind of delusions, but... He doesn't have a family or friends or any connections that help, like, keep him in the same reality. And he doesn't want to be either. Like, we see him looking at this um, daddy's home and he's making calls to see if it would be possible for him to get a new family. And he's talking to Adelaide about running away. Like, he's desperate for something else and he just has nothing here. It's really sad. Yeah, she calls him out and is like, have you ever noticed that all of your plans involve starting over with a totally different identity? And he's like, it's a nice fantasy, which we see later on in his experiences from the pill, uh, his desire to have an escape. I had a little bit of a different read of him in that I feel like he desperately and maybe and maybe this is like this is like just a nuance of what you're saying, too. But I think he desperately. Potato, potato. Yeah. I think he desperately wants to connect. Like, he knows it's a missing piece. And it makes him very sad that he doesn't connect. Like, when he's looking at that painting of his family and he's the only one not in it. Oh, definitely. Like, he's sad. And also, that that is, like, that got the biggest laugh from me. I love that scene where you see that huge painting of his family. (laughs) The tiny, tiny little picture of him next to it. tiny, terrible photo of him. Oh, just so terrible. I was so angry. So angry. Yeah, but when we watch it today, you also laugh because it is, it's, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's funny. It's, 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 it's like, because it's terrible. It's Terry Gilliam level, like dystopian future sad. Like, it's just so yeah. isolating yeah. and horrible. But I think that he, you know, so of course he has mental health problems, which I think make it harder for him to connect but i also think he still desperately wants to connect and everyone around him is just refusing to play ball like his family his family sucks refuses yeah his family is terrible to him and like terrible things happen in the family and they just laugh about it like constantly and not in like a healthy good way like we we managed to get through it and now and now we can joke like it's it's sad yeah he doesn't look like the the pretty boy frat bro that like all yeah. of his brothers seem to be like his brothers yeah, no. look like they could be like j crew models or whatever and they also seem like they're quote well adjusted but in that way that they're all like sociopathic you know yeah, like of course he might be psychopathic sometimes brief and limited psychosis but they seem like sociopaths you know i loved that there is like this there's a very subtle i feel like there's a very subtle joke running through the story about people that owen interacts with in his quote-unquote real life like his family and his boss and people like that where mm-hmm. he says something incredibly incredibly sad that reveals that he is a man full of sorrow and people treat it like it's a sarcastic remark and just think that he's really sarcastic and he's like very humor like dry totally. humor but it's not and i they're just willfully ignoring his feelings and it hurts oh my him god so, so deeply that like, moment just, totally that moment when adelaide like when he's like we could just run away and she like yeah. looks at him for a minute and she's like you're just messing with me. And yeah. he's like, yeah, you got it. And you see us like they're walking away. You see her looking at him and she knows he wasn't messing with her, but it's way less uncomfortable to just like kind of gaslight him and give him like a way out. But like, that means you're just ignoring this person's pain. Owen's interesting. Cause he's like rationally motivated for a desire for love and connection, 
but irrationally motivated by this desire to find the pattern and be the savior of the universe. Being drawn to a Rubik's Cube, this physical manifestation of finding the pattern and solution. Because maybe if he finds that solution, then he can find that love and connection. Yeah. I think there's also a lot of people playing on this like delusion and kind of need he want he has to be the hero, right? This is a thing that he's been told is he's the chosen one. And we see that in the neon lights on the bridge. But then, you know, his dad's talking to him as they're leaving after this party, this horrible, horrible party. (laughs) Oh, my God. And his dad's like, no, it's it's not a lie. It's a gift. Like, you know, him lying on the stand is a gift. And I just was totally struck by the fact as they're having this conversation, like about this gift that Owen's going to give his brother this little robot is picking up a piece of shit, a gift from their dog. And I was like, yeah, that yep. kind of seems right. This like eating shit. Yep. God. But it's a gift. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank- thanks. Yeah. It's a gift. <laughs> and it's a, and it's an honor that you get to give that gift. Yeah. That makes you a part of this family. Don't you want to be a part of this family? Being a part of this family means doing this. Well, and it's also, and, and we'll get into yeah. this later on, but I feel like Owen really resents the fact that people want to people uh, manipulate him so strongly and define who he's going to be based on his mental illness. Mm-hmm. But um, I do think it's kind of interesting that in a lot of ways he appears to be more successful than Annie is. Like he has he I mean, he, he is furloughed right away, but he had a job for a while. He has a clean little apartment that he lives in by himself. He's you know, he's more, I guess, kind of outwardly functional than she is, but also has like more disruptive mental health problems. So I think he's just really good at hiding it because he doesn't really want people to manipulate him. To find him it. by it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He has more on the line, so he's more structured because she she's able to survive without having a job by just selling her face to a stock photo service and shit like that. Like she doesn't need to like have something stable. She's able to be scrappy and scrape by. Annie's totally interesting because Annie, when we first meet her, is she's motivated by this addiction. She's addicted to this trauma she has that's associated with like her last memory of her sister. So she's addicted to reliving this terrible moment where she lost right before she lost the person she loves most in the world. And it's interesting because like we see her and she's drawn to this copy of Don Quixote. She's drawn to this book about a man who tilts with windmills that he believes to be giants. Like she battles with her own kind of delusions too. When when she and her sister are on the road trip and she's shouting at the car next to them, she had just created the story. The old man and the young man in the car had uh swapped bodies, but that you know, the old man was going to leave his his grandson like in this old man body to slip into Alzheimer's and escape with the young body. And she starts screaming at them. And then her sister laughs until she laughs. But like, it seems like for a minute she gets fucking lost in her own reality. Like, I don't think Annie's stable, though. You know what I mean? Oh, no. Uh, God, no. <laughs> no. But like, but in the way that the world yeah. treats her, she's treated as far more stable than Mm -hmm. Owen is for sure because you know he had something he has an episode that was bad enough for everyone to document and yeah everyone holds it way over his head I am into her um I like her a lot she's uh (laughs) I like her her. she's you know she comes when you first see her she just sort of seems extremely guarded and tough you know that she has something that like happened in her life she's had she's had a hard life is what you feel about her um, and you get the sense that she might be scraping by, but like it's coming to the end. Like something, something incredibly bad is going to happen, and or something in- intense is going to happen. And either she will, she'll get over it, and she'll be able to start making healthier choices, or she is truly going to hit rock bottom and probably die. Is <laughs> like how I felt about her when we first got there. You know? Yeah, no, it was it was a real like make or break situation. Annie's addicted to the A pill when we first meet her because A pill makes you relive your trauma. She's addicted to be able to relive this road trip she went on with her sister right before her sister was killed in a car accident that nearly killed Annie as well. But the night before they have a fight where she says the worst thing she's ever said to anyone. When she enters into this study, she takes the A pill again and she talks about how like she's interested in the B pill. She's interested in moving on. But the doctor says, like, 
People who think that they deserve suffering might want to move on, but you'll always be drawn back to the pain that you feel like you deserve, which is super dark. I do feel like we get to see Annie's resilience. Yeah. I mean, my back of the napkin English degree holding um, self decides that like the reason she's addicted to this thing is that because I think initially you think it's going to be something that will make her feel good. Like you get the sense that her life is just bad. And she, like, every day is such and a struggle. And she's experiencing something great. Yeah. yeah. And that she gets, like, she has, like, a, a moment of elation or it's, like, a temporary release so that when you find out that it's actually just thrusts her deeper into her trauma, it's a little bit shocking. But on further yeah. consideration, like, I think it's a sign that she has healthy, it's like this heady combination where she has these healthy impulses to face her trauma and, like, own up to what she mm-hmm. did, but also... It doesn't actually help her move anywhere. She doesn't actually face her trauma. She's just wallowing. So she has this destructive drive that just like feeds the self-loathing that continues to keep her in this like bad loop. No, for sure. She just can't move forward. But, you know, Megan, you work with people who actually do have addiction issues. Does does this feel real to you or do you feel, um, does do you recognize this kind of behavior? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think, you know, when we see her, she uses her last A pill and then she's like, it's a new healthy Annie and then she goes to find out information to blackmail this woman to get into the study. She's like, no, I would never want to hurt her child. I would never threaten that. Right. But when she's faced with that getting taken away, that's like instantly where she goes. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a guy with a van and we got her. Like, we're going <laughs> to get her any minute if you don't let me in this trial. Um, so I think that that definitely is, I mean, a lot of her behavior is like an addict. But I'm also with her. It seems like it's not just this a pill is like an addiction. It's like she feels like she should be punishing herself. Mm. Like she she deserves this on some level because of whatever, whether she blames herself for her sister's death or whether, you know, because of what she said to her and not taking the pictures her sister wanted, like such a minor thing, like. It seems like she feels like she deserves to suffer like that. It's hard. It's no mistake that um, I invited my sister onto this podcast where we deal with these two sisters having this trauma and then um, losing each other. We we get to live in the second episode at the end of it, Annie's A-Pill experience. And as I paused it, like when they're in the middle of this fight and right as Annie gears up to like really just land the killing blow on her sister and she says can I just tell you one more like real thing and I started to like just take notes that were like you know and and Annie's getting ready to because she knows her sister is going to be far away and she might lose her cut that tie herself I just started to cry like it's just like that pain like even though I'm not motivated to say those kinds of things to Megan I've definitely said shitty things to Megan you know and it was just it's I don't know. It's I understand it's kind of unbearable. And if you didn't believe that your sister could possibly forgive you or still love you, I understand why that would run your life. And I, I mean, I think even when we've had arguments like and we'll be like, F you, I'm angry. I love you. I'll talk to you later and hang up. Like, even though I know in theory everything's fine, like it still eats me up until we actually talk and make up again. And so if like. I just imagine not having that opportunity. I think that would be crushing. Yeah. The fight was also a little bit funny. Like, it's really sad, but it was a little bit funny watching it with Kate in the same room because they say a lot of things that I was like, yeah, do you hear that? Don't do that. That's weird. Like, yeah, um, no, the don't don't act like you know what I'm thinking and then say it back as though like as though that's what I'm saying. And I, I know what Megan's thinking all the time. Um, She thinks it very loudly, even though she doesn't say it. And we'll have these inter, inter exchanges where I'm like, yeah, I know what you're thinking. Can you just think it quieter? Because I know you don't want to say it, but I still hear it. Right, Megan? Yeah. Yeah. Y'all have, real, y'all have ESP. Um, yeah. yeah. The thing is, she's yeah. usually right. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Sisters. Anyway, I I think that's I think that siblings in general are pretty spooky. It's a special thing to go through the exact same sort of like brainwashing process of being in a family. 
um, and having yeah. and having <laughs> very pretty much identical genetic makeup, you know, like for yeah, uh, for good good enough for government work, identical <laughs> genetic makeup. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like, and you are bonded to each other in a way that you will never be bonded to your parents because you are they are your sibling is the most blood you'll ever have with somebody else. Like there, there's just no other person you will ever be more related to. Um, well, and 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 they're your peer. Like you all experience the things yeah. together. You all experience your parents together. Even if your family's perfect and wonderful, they're still the person who share that experience. They're still the person who knows all of your stories, as Annie says later on. You know, yeah. There's no one else who knows all your stories the way that your family does, but especially your sibling. And if you I- don't have a sibling, it doesn't. You're fine. It's just you know, it's just reality. If you do. Yeah, and I think that there's like some subtle stuff there with the families. Ultimately, you have a story about a woman coming to terms with her family, who is her sister, for the most part. And you also have a man who is coming to terms with his family, which is a family of brothers. So I think there's like a brother-sister duality at play here, which is kind of mm-hmm. which is kind of nice. Um, yeah. And I liked I liked how sort of claustrophobic annie's story was within that it's like just her and her sister like it's it's really that so much so that you don't even like see her dad early on who is still alive and you ne- and you never see her mother like her mother may or may not may be living or dead she's sort of like the ghost in the machine of like the family trauma for sure we hear a lot about her yeah. but you never see her and then you have owen whose family is basically laid bare right you like see everybody and he is in exile from them basically yeah so i think you have a story where it's like this these this is a woman who desperately needs to find her way back and find forgiveness and acceptance in her family and you have the story about a guy who's like needs to get away from his family very very badly his family is yeah needs to find acceptance anywhere else and i think it's at all like at all costs at all costs yes he needs to find his like a new family like that is i think his his story arc i don't really think the story invites us too much to like sort of uh evaluate the class difference between Annie and Owen. Like you know that Owen's family's richer. You see it. I didn't even get anything pat where it's like Annie's family's more working class, so you know all they got is each other. Like there's none of that even. That's sort of like weirdly absent for me. But mm-hmm. while I was trying to like chase down that nut, I did read a little bit about Owen's apartment on Roosevelt Island. And so Roosevelt Island, um, if you didn't know, is this little strip. It's a little it's a little landmass, a literal island kind of in the middle of Manhattan. It's surrounded by water on all sides. You have to take either a underground subway to get to it or you take a like an air tram. Um, And and originally it was basically used to house garbage and lunatics for a really long time, basically through the entire 1800s. Fascinating. Isn't that cool? So, yeah, (laughs) I know. So at its height. uh, So the New York City Lunatic Asylum um, was opened in 1839 there um, and it included this big. It's very iconic. If you see it, you'll be like, oh, I recognize that from the New York skyline. But there's this big octagon tower which is still there and people still live in it but that was part of the lunatic asylum um and at its height it held sort of like kind of towards the end of the 1800s it held it held uh 1700 inmates which was twice the designed capacity for it (laughs) like people yeah so there's also a place of horror cheek to gel yeah terrible Absolutely yeah. terrible. So I think it's really funny that Owen's like active rebellion is to move into an island that once held lunatics to get away from his family, which we see later mir- mirrored later on. <laughs> like, yeah. I think I think that that his trajectory, I think, because he's a patterned person, he bookends his story in a really interesting way. I think something also that's interesting about Annie is, Megan, you highlighted that like she's kind of doesn't have uh any limits like she was willing to threaten this woman's daughter like lie to her about the fact their daughter's in danger just to get into the study but something that makes us so endeared to annie so early on is that she does have empathy like when dr uh muramoto dies in front of them and she calls owen into the room and she's going through his drawers and stuff owen is talking about the experience he actually had on the a pill he's talking about like being in love with this girl Olivia and them actually connecting and him having uh, a a blip a brief and limited uh, psychosis wherein he 
was sure that his family was paying her to act like she cared about him and loved him, but she didn't care about him at all. And he like freaked out on her. And Annie, as she's listening to the story, was like, oh, my mom used to call it having a day. And, you know, I wouldn't have lied to you if I had known you'd experience this. And I'm really sorry. And that's, you know, that's really messed up. And like, like opens up to him and care for him. It makes you love her because the fact that she's willing to care for the small things when she's hanging up all these signs for a missing dog, which we find out during her A-pill experience, she lost her sister's dog. She sees one of those little shit-eating robots stuff, a little (laughs) Wally-esque kind of bot. And she goes over and she, like, sets it on its path after, like, taping a little, you know, one of the flyers onto it, which is super smart. And, like, she's willing to go and, like, help these things. And, like, she reads Don Quixote and she's kind of, you know, Megan, you told me that you felt like that's also her kind of being, like, drawn to, like, someone who experiences delusions, you know, um, with mm-hmm. a hero complex. I mean, we can talk about the Don Quixote if you want to now. Like, I, I haven't read it, admittedly, so I wikipedia it and mm-hmm. now know everything about it, clearly. Clearly, um, yeah. But, you know, I was really struck, like, just from what I was able to glean that, you know, there are a lot of parallels between Owen and Don Quixote, right? Like, he is also a guy from the upper class who decides to go out in the world and be a hero, and um, then what's the other Sancho? Sancho Panza. Um, yeah. Sancho Panza. Like, so I feel like that's Annie's character. And even in the like brief description, it talks about how Sancho is forced to deceive him at certain points. And I do feel like that plays out a lot where Annie, whether it's to get Owen to do what she needs him to do or in the reflections, like, she does deceive him, but it seems to work out okay for him in the end. But, yeah, I felt like there was a lot of parallels there. So. Well, and and I, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're very close to diving into Annie and Owen's B-pill experience. But um, in it, there's this moment where she's reading Don Quixote to, uh, she's a nurse in the B-pill experience. And she's reading it to one of her patients. And this is all that we hear her read from it. And it's. And they would lure him back. And when they did, they would find out once and for all if his exceptional madness could be cured. And it's read as though it's a sweet moment. She's like, isn't that nice? And it's like, that is very foreboding. They're going to lure him back and find out if they can cure his madness. That sounds like entrapment and possible murder. You know, it's very interesting. Yeah, I liked the idea. Uh, I agree that I think Annie, especially at the beginning, is definitely like a Sandra Panza kind of character. You have you have her begrudgingly, she, not only to Owen, but also to her little sister a little bit in the beginning. Yeah. Like when she's like mm-hmm. begrudgingly going on this quest to Salt Lake City. Like the entire time I'm like, why did you make her drive you? This seems like not a good idea. But like, so, like she doesn't seem like a great travel companion, to be honest with you. Um, but she's still going, right? She doesn't. But she's the only sister you got, you right? Know? Right. Like Sandra Panza does stand by and hold and hold Don Quixote's stuff while Don Quixote like chases a, a windmill down. Like that is that. And, is... He, and Sancho has affection for Don Quixote. Absolutely. Yes. Know? No. They have a. Yeah. They actually have, if anything, a much sweeter relationship than these two do at the beginning. of the story yeah um and i think weirdly enough i think or i felt invited to sort of see that annie sort of needs to move into the driver's seat and be her own don quixote she has like this desire to go on a quest to retrace the steps to go back to salt lake city and like have something have something a goal in mind right but yeah but all she can yeah, do... Yeah, no, you're right. She wants to be... Yeah, she wants the, to be. The lead. And I kind of thought that that was a little bit beautiful to be like, you know, it wouldn't hurt her to have fantastical goals. She doesn't really have any right now. It might be a good idea yeah. if she had some. And so it's yeah. sort of like she needs to sort of like loosen up and become okay with her own her own differentness and her own weirdness enough and feel like joy in her own weirdness a little bit the way that he does uh, in the novel and stop being the sidekick. I love that. We find out that the GRTA uh, has entered into an inappropriate office uh, relationship with Dr. Muramoto. So upon hearing that Dr. Muramoto has died, she begins malfunction. And through this malfunction, she drips some metal. And that metal causes a connection between Annie and Owen's 
feeds in this computer system, which means when they take the B pill and they enter into this experience, their experience is linked together. Gertie's literal machine trauma welds them together. You see them having this history of making choices, and it's hard to see exactly where that line is between, like, what are the choices they're actually making? Where are the true selves uh, poking out versus the story that like the, the GRTA is providing them? Where do we see the autonomy? This is my favorite fantasy sequence. I call like their the, the experiences when when they're within the machine. Yeah, um, the, the reflections. Fantasy, but the reflections. I think we can definitely call yeah. them fantasy, fantasy sequences because that's what they are. Yeah, um, it's that's just what like they very... would call it in psychoanalytic theory for Ooh. sure. These Ooh. are fantasy. Hey. Look yeah, the problem is he, this doctor, Dr. Mantelary, wants to divorce himself so much from existing theory that requires uh, psychiatry that he refuses to use fantasy. I like that, Megan. Psychoanalytic theory for the win. Go ahead, Mary. <laughs> um, but I just like this. I think this is the most, like, this is the most fun I feel like we have. I agree. Uh, even yeah. though there are other more fantastical things later, it feels mm-hmm. the most easy breezy and i think it's really funny yeah, it's low stakes and fun yeah which is funny because this is all the blind spot stuff so you would think that this would be like deeply sinister or at least i expected mm-hmm. it to and I, I like that they surprise us with that you know i feel like it's a combination of annie and owen sort of like living out living out lives they would absolutely never have in a way that they absolutely never would be in those lives so annie is linda and owen is bruce and they are married and they have kind of like um like a cartoony a little bit working class family annie um is a is probably a nurse or an orderly um at a elder care facility and bruce goes, does god knows what but he is <laughs> yeah, definitely knows. god knows what but he is practically in like normal cis straight man drag like he's wearing like yeah. a football <laughs> oh jersey god. that literally has the number <laughs> 1 on it <laughs> <laughs> and he has a mullet and he's just like always oh, falling asleep in front of the TV set. And then mm-hmm. Annie is definitely still herself, but she's in this role where she's like an infinite caregiver. Like they have like two daughters. She's a, she's a mom. And then she has these elderly patients, which she forms these really tight bonds with, obviously, and like truly seems to enjoy her work. So you're like, Annie is not in a place in her life where this is something that I think she could do, you know? Like it's it's all she's very like she's externally very loving and just kind of giving in to all these connections around her um, in a way that I, I think she's too emotionally closed off to do in real life. So that's like the fantasy element, I think, of it is that like she wants to be like sort of sort of a little bit of a busybody and very connected and very like up in other people's lives and like very preoccupied with that. Whereas Owen just yeah. wants to like pretend to be a normal like just a normal dude, most standard issue dude he possibly could be, which which he cannot in his life either. It's it's also really fun, all of these reflections. So we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more uh in part two. Uh have all these fun callbacks to um to earlier things in their actual lives. And I love that the little girl, like one of his nieces he was really close to, is his daughter in it. Because sweet. like you already saw them bond. It's very it's very sweet. Very sweet. And I'm real into sweet things, apparently. So I love yeah. all the jokes she tells him too. Those are solid jokes. I know. <laughs> she's a good kid actor. The restaurant on the moon. Yeah. Oh my god. She's so cute. Great food. Um, no atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. Really good. I mean, basically, their fantasy is that they're living this how this normal life, suburban life. She's working. He's reading self-help books about being a better husband. Um, and then apparently this sweet old lady, just the kindest, Man. sweetest Nan, dies and leaves a lemur that she wants Linda to deliver to her daughter and wouldn't you know it, someone comes and just steals that lemur right out of her car and takes it to a fur shop where they're going to turn it into a hat, muff, hat. something. Oh, uh, hat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. But I mean, it's so it's kind of interesting, right? Like she gets him. He supports her on this whole like heist to get this lemur. There's like shootouts. There's guns. There's an arrest. But like, really, she doesn't loop him in on any of it as far as I can tell. Like, nope. Yeah, he's all? definitely like a passenger, like a passenger who's like, like when she uh, it's in, and this is what I thought was interesting because she's like 
I mean, you'll be interested in this. And he's like, no, I love it. Like, you always keep life interesting. And that seems to be like, no, now that we have autonomy over our characters, like, I want to be connected with someone and I'll be on whatever crazy adventure you're on because I I just want a person. And, you know, she like, so who knows what their memories were in this world. But she, like, is assuming, like, always that, like, you know, she has to go it alone. And so that was, like, a really fun tension but yeah no he's he's definitely not looped in on any of it it's kind of it'd be messed up if he seemed to care at all but he does not seem to care at all that he's not looped in this universe kind of follows like weird sitcom rules if like if like fargo was a sitcom kind of like it's very like like it's very it's like wild but you definitely like you could imagine uh bruce in his mind being like oh this is just a classic linda situation (laughs) like like wendy the lemur got stolen out of the back of her a back of her volvo yeah classic linda we gotta go and steal it back from the mobsters who own a a first store and offer me bulletproof furs because you seem like that kind of guy oh so awesome <laughs> um <laughs> so but it's just it's so good like it's very conan brothers to me in this yeah. this story where like everybody every everybody kind of gets like an entrance everybody who's yeah. in this story they come on and they like they get like a little least time to kind of give you an idea of who they are from the woman that she's reading don quixote to in um the elder care facility who's like who's like i'm just happy to be alive you're like oh i get you lady i know what you're like to the fish and wildlife <laughs> yeah. guy who you can just like you're like oh he really don't you wish you were like a real cop okay i get it yeah, yeah. no he's a, yeah. he's played by the security guard who earlier says the same thing to her which is like she's like are you a cop he's like no real difference in terms of authority and so like when there is a shootout he's like yes and you're like yeah that's what that guy always wanted for his job to be as exciting as actually being a cop I do. I like the little moments where I think that you see their personalities coming out. So I like by far, I think the most like obvious one is that at the end of all of this, when uh, Linda and Bruce are home and with Wendy the lemur and Fish and Wildlife knows that they have him and is like coming to get him to arrest them and like return Wendy to Madagascar. uh, You see Bruce take the fall. You see Bruce in the front yard taking out his trash. And you see them advance and he puts his hands up. So he's like going to take the fall for this caper and probably save Linda. So that's like you get this like sense that that's kind of what's going on in his real life, too. He's being prepared to kind of prostrate himself on the court and his and, and take the fall for like by lying and providing this alibi for Jed, yeah. his real life brother. So like that's, that's I totally. think, sort of a piece because like it's it, and, and this is like a fun story he like enjoys the ride but like you you get the sense that in real life he also doesn't really know like he knows that jed's not a good guy so he probably did it but like he is in the dark as to the order of events that have led to him having to take the stand and lie to him and lie to the court to save jed absolutely absolutely but it, it is interesting and i know i'm breaking my own rule but like the very next episode no. starts with a different reflection wherein when they meet he's like mad at her because like she left him and he went and did time so like you know he he also like while he's clearly so willing and like just instantly does it uh he does also understand the injustice of it and like feels that uh in their next reflection like that carries over it's very interesting but i like i love this moment where she's trying to find out like the code to get into the back door because they've changed it. it was originally one two three four and she's like what is it the dancers say before they start dancing? He's like five, six, seven, eight. She's like yes, and like types that <laughs> in, and that's the code. Like it's it's a lot of fun hijinks. You I know. I read this. I didn't yeah. figure this out myself, but five, six, seven, eight is also the code to get them into the room where uh, Gertie microwaves their brain. Ooh, <laughs> I did not know that. Nope. That is fascinating. I love that. I love all those callbacks. That's the thing. This show, it's so interesting because I took color-coded notes on this and i thought i cut everything and then megan and i are rewatching. and she's like naming all this shit i'm like how did i not notice that like i've watched this now like many times but uh Kate, yeah you're very... nearly mortal and liable right? and liable to miss weird and not li- and liable to not slow down your netflix so you can watch them type in five, 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 six, seven, eight <laughs> on a keypad <laughs> you have a life so yeah that's okay. Well, I so a moment in the in the B pill that was clearly um about Owen, uh when when <clears throat> when Linda is inside uh the DMV, he's reading one of these self help books, 
and it was fascinating. I actually paused the page because he's looking at um, the the name of the chapter is on emotional poltergeists, and on the other side is a picture of Olivia. And in the caption it says, "Olivia Meadows, your quote emotional poltergeist who you screamed at during your blip." And then I read the text on the other side. And I'll only like read the bottom, but like I just fascinating that they wrote an entire page of text that you could actually read when you paused it. Traditional psychotherapists like to talk about the closure via confrontation. And I admit, even I used to believe in such things. But the sad truth is, we often don't have the ability to confront our old lovers. They've gone. They're dead. Perhaps you're old, you had a schizophrenic break in college and screamed at a young woman you felt a soul connection to. And that moment has always haunted you and shamed you and informs every new relationship you try to begin. Because what if the same thing happened again? Have you ever thought of apologizing and moving on? Like, just wild shit that that is, like, an actual page written. And also hilarious that, like, this book he's reading starts, like, talking specifically to his journey. I just, I loved that. I thought that was great. Right. And it's written by, even in this universe, it's written by yeah. uh, Mantle, Mantle Ray. Mantle Ray Sr. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Awesome. So I have a question. So this mm-hmm. first, like, B-pill, it seems pretty obvious, maybe, maybe not, that, like, Linda slash Annie's blind spot is that she does want a family and she does want this relationship and to build this life and community. Uh, Owen slash Bruce, I have a really hard time figuring out what the blind spot is that he's dealing with. I, I think it's that, like... He actually does want to know what's going on. Like, he's connected to her in this narrative. But, like, I think that the idea is that he does actually mind being dragged along, which relates to, like, kind of his family life. He is not willing to accept connection at any price. Mm, okay. This is more of a story, I think, about her. She gets most of most of the screen time here. And, like, most of, like, that whole scene where she's talking to Paula after uh, Nan's daughter, after she delivers Wendy. And, basically, she realizes that Wendy is a spite lemur, not... <laughs> not a love lemur <laughs> yeah and uh yeah. and paula is is reading this like incredibly mean note that she wrote where she's just like you should have a lemur instead of having a child because children yeah, are terrible why lemurs are better than children yeah well they don't operate heavy machinery she says that that's so, wild yeah yep. heavy machinery or vehicles and at that moment we also hear like the truck drive by um and you see it they... we see it yeah he does yeah like he sees yeah no it. and it affects both of them like they're both like what the fuck just happened here i think her story is all about realizing that like there isn't that family that family is is a messed up thing just because you're a family doesn't mean you have it all together like and that her family might be more normal than not but also realizing that she is not going to live her life she is not going to be delivering a spite lemur to her near and dear at the end of their life um yeah is like her yeah is like her blind spot and then i love the scene um where they're driving home after uh paul has rejected the lemur and um she starts telling that story about what happened to her and ellie her real life sister when her mom left and there's that moment where owen who's like been trying i think his story is also sort of about him like trying he knows he needs to emotionally connect and work on his marriage but like he can't quite put his finger on where their disconnection happens. And I feel like we as a viewer have that too. We're like, why don't these people have a good marriage? Like, he seems like a good dad. She seems like a good mom. They seem to like each other. They seem to like each other, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, they, they seem healthy and they seem fine, but, like, there's he clearly knows there's a problem if he's seeking answers for it, right? And yeah. he puts his hand on her, on her hand, on her leg to, like, comfort her because she's telling him something hard, and she pulls her hand away, and he's, like, you see him, like, kind of make a face about it. Like, he knows that that's wrong. So I think it's also a little bit of a story about rejection and like him realizing yeah. that he is actually trying very hard to connect with people and that everyone around him is rejecting him constantly <laughs> like especially his family yeah. yeah what did you make of her having that little like breakthrough where like she's having her real memories in that scene um i mean i'm not sure but it's like he's having that too like it's less explicit like most things with owen it's like more in his head but you know like the book has a picture of Olivia and is talking mm-hmm. about his blip. Like, he has some of that also. Um, so I'm not sure what to make of it, I guess. But Yeah, no, you're right. Because my whole theory was about, like, Annie, like, just being, like, like because her brain has already experienced, like, one of these pills. Like, maybe um, maybe she's just, like, has an easier access to her real memories. But, um, 
probably just in these scenarios like you're supposed to be like it you're finding all the like the mazes and the walls you put up but you know you still have the core trauma there i guess yeah Uh, and i think it's also maybe a little hint that like they can snap out of it so when we see them snap out of it when within their fantasy sequences later on we're like oh yeah Yeah. that was always there like they can kind of they can kind of do it now um, and, yeah. and right, and Gertie is pulling from their minds, so it totally makes sense that there would be like these little, these little blips potentially. Is blip yeah. a technical term? I mean, it definitely sounds like something someone would say, like a doctor during a conversation, rather than being like, "You're real psychotic." Like, well, so there's a little blip. Your brain's not working totally perfect all the time. Like, kind of downplay it for a education or something but yeah mm-hmm. it's yeah. nothing yeah it's not it's a, you didn't you didn't have like an entire um an entire section on blips um uh, in med yeah, school that's not, <laughs> no. that's not listed in the dsm the like diagnostic <laughs> criteria or anything if so it'd be okay. like it'd be like terry gilliam like there would just be asterisks everywhere it's like this could happen but it also could be a blip this is a thing sure. but also maybe a blip <laughs> Next time on Space Frost, we'll be picking up with our Maniac Part 2 episode. Megan has kindly agreed to join us as we wrap up our discussion on the series. So we'll be focusing on episodes 5 through 10. And as always, thank you for listening to Space Bras. Head over to Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice to subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. Um, be sure to visit our brand spanking new website, outrageousmechanisms.com slash space dash bras to see our show notes and find other excellent podcasts. Plus, we're on all the social medias, mostly Twitter and Instagram. But check us out there. Follow us. Love us. It'll be great. Yeah. See all of our beautiful gifts and videos that um, someone on our team just loves making. Mm-hmm. So, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> And now, join us as we raise our glasses and give the official toast of Space Bras. In these troubled times, we must remember that even though everyone might suck, we are awesome and the galaxy is ours. Cheers! Outrageous.